We read God's Word in Luke 22. The 22nd chapter of Luke, we read the first 34 verses. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve, and he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money, and he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good men of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not eat any more thereof, until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. This far we read the word of God. I call your attention to verses 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Beloved saints in Christ, if you looked back over the course of your life, 
Could you identify one moment, or maybe in the lives of some of you, more than one moment, when your trials were especially severe? When you wondered if the Lord even knew what you were going through, and if He knew why He did not immediately put an end to it, Was there a moment at which you said, if this is the way He's going to treat me, then I'm going to cast off my faith in Him? Why serve Him if this is the payment, the reward for service? Is there a moment like that in your life? And if those thoughts specifically did not go through your head, think yet of the greatest trial that the Lord has led you through, Did you not ask what the Lord was doing about it? And now if His answer to you was this, I saw your trial and I was praying. How would that strike you? Praying? Of course, it's a beautiful doctrine to know that we have an interceding interceding mediator, but just praying, doing nothing else than praying, and if his word to you was, I was praying that your faith fail not. And would you not see that our Lord and Savior, in the greatest moment of our temptation, was in fact, working to deliver us from it, and even more, to preserve us in it. And that's his word to Peter. It's not a temptation that's past. It's not an explanation of a past event in Peter's life. It's a word to Peter about what the Lord is going to do in light of a very imminent temptation, one that will come upon him that very day. One that Peter says, No, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. It's not as bad as you say. And the Lord says, Peter, I've prayed that your faith fail not. That's his prayer for us. Us as individual members of his covenant. Us as his church and part of the church universal It's his prayer for us as he is exalted at the right hand of our Heavenly Father, interceding. Because he prays that prayer, and because the prayer will be heard and answered, his work, and the text as it speaks of his work, refers to the preservation of the saints of God. You and I are weak and sinful, We cannot stand a moment in our own strength. And even though renewed and regenerated by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, if it were up to us to continue a moment in the faith and in the grace that Jehovah has given, we would not and we could not, but we would fall immediately and our entire salvation would be dashed. There are many components to the preservation of the saints. All of them are carried out by our mediator, Jesus Christ, and to one of them especially, he draws our attention in our text. He intercedes. So I call your attention to the text under the theme, Christ's Prayer for Peter's Preservation. Christ's Prayer for Peter's Preservation. Notice first, a violent shaking predicted. Second, messianic intercession assured, and third, grateful response required. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. It was the night in which Jesus would be betrayed, and he and the disciples are either yet in the upper room or have begun to leave the upper room, probably are still in it, but very soon we'll leave it, and we'll go to the Mount of Olives, and there he will be betrayed. He has already dismissed Judas Iscariot, and Judas is arranging with the chief priests how now to capture Jesus. And it's at that moment when the band of soldiers comes to arrest Jesus that the disciples are going to be subject to the greatest temptation they have ever faced.
Not the first by any means, but the greatest. The temptation will be to deny that Jesus is their Lord. It will be to leave Him and to forsake Him who is their Master and whom they said they would follow. And it would be even to deny that they even knew Him. All the disciples would forsake Jesus and flee. John, however, would be with Jesus when he was in the palace of the high priest being tried. But Peter, Peter, would sneak into the palace, come and stand in that open courtyard around the fire, try to observe the goings-on, and when three times be told, you are one of his disciples, would say, oh no, I'm not, and even curse with an oath that he did not know the man. It is that temptation to which Jesus refers in our text when he says, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. And it was not a temptation particular to Peter. Although Peter is the one being addressed, the you in our text is plural. Satan hath desired to have the disciples. He wants the disciples no longer to be disciples. That's what Jesus is telling Peter. The means of Satan to accomplish this, if he can accomplish it, is going to be an extremely violent means. And for that reason, the figure in the text of the sifting of wheat is to the point. Before there were combines, before there were even horse-drawn threshing machines, you sifted wheat with a pitchfork. The wheat had been brought in to some place, maybe the threshing floor, where high on a hill with the open uh, air around and the breezes of the evening, the farmer would throw the wheat into the air with force and violence. His goal was to separate the wheat from the straw and the chaff. And then the wind would blow the wheat, the, the straw and the chaff away and the wheat kernels would fall down to the floor. It took force. You don't just take a stalk of wheat and shake it rather gently to accomplish the purpose. And so Jesus is saying to Peter two things really by this analogy. First of all, that the goal of Satan is not just to subject the disciples to a temptation, but to separate them from their Lord as the goal of the farmer is to separate the wheat from the chaff. But in the second place, that in order to accomplish that, Satan understands his temptations must be violent. These are men who've loved Jesus. They have renounced all, their livelihood, their fishing, their tax collecting to follow him. And for three and a half years, they've done what he told them to. They have gone with him. They have even gone throughout the land of Israel, preaching the gospel on his behalf in order to remove them or separate them from their master. Not just that the master die, but that the disciples throw away all hope that they had that in this Jesus Christ, their blessedness is found. And in order to get them to renounce that so fully, that they will go back to their fishing and tax collecting Satan must work a violent temptation. No less violent are the temptations that come upon the children of God. Not every temptation is violent, but many are. Temptation is Satan, using whatever means and whatever form, trying to convince us that Jesus Christ is, is not our Savior, that God, Jehovah God, is not our God, trying to convince us that everything that the Scripture sets forth as truth, all that we are taught to hope for, is not worth believing and is not worth hoping for, and therefore to abandon the Christian faith and live like the world. That's temptation. It comes on you and me. 
Every child of God endures it. There hath no temptation taken you, said Paul to the Corinthians, but such as is common to man. And then there are times when Satan designs a temptation to be especially severe because he understands that up until this point, in the lighter temptations he's brought our way, he has not yet accomplished his purpose. And among the greatest temptation yet that any child of God could endure, I refer now to answer 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism, is not the temptation to steal or to commit fornication and adultery or to speak evil of my neighbor or of my authority, but is the temptation to say the work Jesus Christ did on the cross is not for me. It has no benefit for me. I'm not united to Him by a true and living faith. I'm not saved. Therefore, why pretend? Let me just go live like the world. Those are the greatest temptations. What explains the violence of this sifting and shaking and of our temptation are especially two factors, both of which are found in the text. The first is Satan. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. We can understand this because the Apostle James teaches in chapter 1, verse 13, that it is not God who tempts. Granting, of course, the sovereignty of God over all things, And understanding that He is sovereign over temptation. That He knows the temptation. He even has designed the temptation. And He arranges all the circumstances of our life so that we will be brought into temptation. Granting all that, God does not move the heart of any one of His children to blaspheme Him or to turn away from Him. Satan does that. Another thing then the text reminds us by implication is that Satan, when he comes to tempt you and me, is not acting sovereignly, but is acting as a tool of Jehovah. Jehovah desires that our faith be tested and tried. He therefore permits Satan to shake it and see if he can Destroy it. And so Jesus says to Peter, Satan hath desired to have you. The word translated desired doesn't just speak of a will of one's heart. It speaks of a will as it comes to evidence in a request. In other words, here also, just like in the book of Job, we have a picture of Satan coming to God. And Satan saying to God, God, what I want is those twelve disciples. What I want is those twelve disciples to be separated from Jesus Christ. What I want is to tempt and try them so harshly and violently that their faith is destroyed and I can't do it. Without your permission, so give me permission. That's what Satan is doing here. And that explains again, not only Job's temptation, but also the sins that David fell into when Satan moved him to number the people, etc. Do you see then why your own temptations and mine sometimes would be almost unbearably Severe, Satan, more powerful than me, has a goal. There's a reason why Satan would be so bold when it is that Satan made this request to God, we're not told. But he already saw what he could accomplish through Judas Iscariot. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains 
how he might betray him unto them. Judas Iscariot, one of the more prominent of the disciples, in that he was the one who held the purse. He was their treasure. And then if also he can get Simon Peter, one of the more prominent of the disciples, in that he has a ready mouth, he's their spokesman. And if getting Judas Iscariot and Peter, he can get all twelve, he has accomplished a great deal. Satan is bold. The second factor indicated in the text that speaks or explains the violence of the temptations is that they are exercised on weak humans. Simon. Simon. Simon had already been given a different name by Jesus when he made him his disciple. He said, John 1 verse 42, your name isn't going to be Simon anymore, I'm going to call you Peter. And although throughout the gospel accounts we see Jesus sometimes calling him Simon and other times Peter, the point Jesus was making in John 1 verse 42 is that this Simon was a man with human parentage, with all of the weaknesses and depravity of the human nature, as you and I share in also, And Jesus was going to make of this man, this sinner, this one who can be blown around by every wind and temptation, was going to make of him a rock. Peter. It's significant that Jesus does not address him here as Peter. He does later. I tell thee, Peter, as if to remind him I didn't forget my promise, and I'm still working with that in goal. But in the text, it's Simon Simon, do you remember who you are? Simon, you were just a man. Simon, you have all the weaknesses of the human nature, the sins. And so do you and I. And this explains the intensity of the temptations that we endure. I'm not going to refer explicitly to any article of the Canons of Dort in this sermon. Uh, The fifth head, of course is the head that treats the topic of which the text treats. But I will point out that in the canons, the same two reasons are given. Why temptations are so violent for the child of God. Satan and my own weak nature. One of the reasons I chose to preach on this text this evening instead of that which is in the bulletin is because in this day also a congregation a group of the disciples of Jesus, is subjected to a temptation. The departure of a pastor from a congregation and under the circumstances in which Reverend Klein left is, as I alluded to this morning, an attempt of Satan to destroy us. And just as Satan wanted the twelve disciples... Because if he could get the twelve disciples, and then if he could get Jesus on the cross, what would the rest of Jesus' followers do? If he can get the prominent ones to renounce him, then all the others will also leave. I'm not suggesting that Reverend Klein renounced Jesus as his personal Savior. That's not an impression I mean at all to leave. But still, Satan has his eyes on the office bearers of the church. And although that's always been true, we've seen it in our denomination again and again of late. Why is it that the men who are put in office, who when being put in office are judged to be qualified according to the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and why is it that they who we trust are filled with the Spirit in order to lead us to be one who brings the Word to us in our temptations, why is it that they are shaken also? Why is it that some 
in the past and not so distant past, will not submit to their elders? Why is it that some in the past and even continuing into the present, no longer in our denomination, will teach what is not true doctrine in accordance with the Scriptures and the Confessions? Why is it that others over the history of our denomination have fallen especially into sexual sins and sometimes sexual sins of such a gross nature? Well, two things. They're Satan. And he wants the true churches of Jesus Christ destroyed. In the second place, there's the human nature. And even a deacon, an elder, and a pastor is but a man who must be on his and her in his guard at every moment, lest he fall. It's in light of this violent shaking, which underscores, of course, the need of our preservation, that Jesus says to Peter, But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and assures him of messianic intercession. In this second point, I want especially to develop the doctrine of preservation in the light of the text. We're going to begin by asking, what is the doctrine? What is this grace of which the text speaks? What is the preservation of the saints? Well, to begin with, it assumes that one is a saint. And a saint in which the Scripture speaks of a saint. Not a great extra holy person, but a child of God, regenerated by grace, and in whom faith has been implanted, so that Jesus Christ lives in that one, in you and in me. Of such, the text is speaking, a Simon and the disciples. The preservation of which the text speaks now is not that these saints will never undergo any trials of faith, nor that they will never be confronted with an opportunity to sin, nor that they will never fall into sin. That's not the prayer of Jesus. His prayer is this, that in the hour of temptation, and even should they fall into sin, their faith fail not. That, in a nutshell, is the preservation of the saints. That isn't just saying that they continue to believe, although that's certainly part of it, but that's saying even more at the heart of it, that the grace of God worked in them by Jesus Christ continue to be worked in them with the result that they continue to confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So there are two things going on here. Thy faith fail not, that is, grace be not taken away, but be continually given. And then, a grace as manifests itself in the life of the child of God. It is not fully the preservation of saints for you or for me in a moment of temptation just to have grace preserved in us, but it is the preservation of the saints when that child of God who has grace preserved in him or her makes a confession. He is my master. I know the man. Kill me if you want for that. Fine. I know the man. He is the one who's going to judge me and find me righteous in his own shed blood. And He is the one who will also judge you. So be careful what you do to me. And bear in mind you will stand before Him and be afraid of Him if you are not covered by His shed blood. That is the preservation of the saints. And in addition, as it comes out in the text, the preservation of the saints includes that grace of God by which a man is converted. That is, brought to grief and sorrow for sin and repentance again, as Peter would be. Only moments, really, 
after his great sin, when he looked up in that courtyard onto the second story balcony and saw Jesus look at him and heard the cock crow. The second thing to do in this point is to underscore the personal character of the preservation of saints. Jesus is speaking to a person here, Simon, Simon. By implication, he's saying that he will preserve the faith of all the elect disciples, not of Judas. He had no faith anyway, but of the elect disciples. But especially Jesus' point is, notice this, I have prayed for thee. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, all twelve of you, but I have prayed for thee. This is not to suggest that that Jesus Christ did not pray for the others. It is not to suggest either, as Rome makes the text mean, that there was something extra special about Peter and that he rose above the others in importance or significance. It is simply that Jesus is speaking now to Peter. Peter, the one who has always been bold. The Peter, the one who has always been ready to say, I will go with you to prison and to death. And to that Peter, Jesus had to say, you are in a greater danger than you are aware of, and I have prayed for thee. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So they too are those for whom the Lord prays not only, but in whom He will continue salvation. In other words, the preservation of saints is a particular grace that comes only to those who are the children of God, but to them it comes inevitably, assuredly, and from the viewpoint of God, certainly. The third place, let's notice the means by which the saints are preserved. As I said in the introduction, there are many components to the work of preservation. Sometimes the Lord, as it were, puts another human right in the way. We have a sin in mind, and we are intent to carry out that sin, and we're on our way to carry out that sin, and the Lord says, you're going to stop right here. Maybe it's another person. Maybe it's a car accident. Maybe it's some other earthly means. He can use such. Other times, it's the guilty conscience. It's a recognition that what we're about to do and our old man wants to do is not pleasing to Jehovah God. And so he creates in us already a horror of committing the sin and thus keeps us from committing it. Other times, of course, we commit the sin. And He brings us to repentance. But regardless of the various means, one is central. I have prayed for thee. Now this is before our Lord died and before He rose again. Before He sat at the right hand of Jehovah God, exalted. But He knew He would die and He knew His death would be effective for Peter's salvation. So that even before dying, he brings to God this petition, which now, seated at the right hand of God, he brings to Jehovah on behalf of each of us individually, of us as a congregation, of disciples everywhere, and the body of Christ throughout the world as a whole, he prays. That's what he does. And you and I don't say, when we hear what he's praying about, and when we hear that he's praying this on the basis of his shed blood, and when we hear that his goal in praying is to restore us with a view to preparing us for heaven, we don't say that's all he's doing is praying, but we say, my Savior loves me so much that he's praying. And praying, and praying, and does not stop praying. What love He has for us. The basis, of course, must be underscored. 
Why can Jesus say this to Peter? Why can the prayer of Jesus be different from the prayer of one of the other disciples? John, perhaps, who might come to Peter and say, Peter, I sense you're in a bad way. I sense the devil has a hold of you and I'm going to pray for you. Why is the prayer of Jesus so necessary and so precious? It is because He is the Son of God come in the flesh. It is because He, as the one who is truly human, knows our troubles. He Himself was tempted, yet without sin. It is because He, knowing our troubles, being truly man, also has the power to deliver us from them. He is man, and yet God in the flesh. And there's more. It isn't just that He's the right kind of man, God in the flesh, but He is Jesus Christ. He is, as the text says, the Lord and the Master, the one appointed of God to this end. You might find another man. You won't. You won't. But let's imagine for a moment that you could find some other man who is sinless. And therefore you say, surely He also can help me in my hour of need. He can pray for me. Rome says that about Mary and other of what they call saints. And therefore, that one can be a help to me. And Jehovah God says, no, they can't. Because not only is Jesus Christ God in the flesh, but He is the appointed and anointed mediator. He's the only one whom God called to this work. Only one whose work God will approve of. Find somebody else if you can. You can't. But if you can, who is a perfect man, and have Him pray for you, and God will say of Him, but I haven't appointed you to be the mediator and the intercessor of my people. Jesus Christ, I have. His prayers I will hear. And so our Lord intercedes on the basis of His own shed blood. And the Lord hears and answers. That especially in the text is the means of preservation. Now there's one other point that the text makes in this connection. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So, not to supplement, or not in addition to the work of Jesus Christ interceding, but because Jesus Christ, our intercessor, also works in and through us as means, there comes a calling to each one of us. Do you see a brother or a sister who's in a bad way, who's being tempted? Go to him or her and strengthen, encourage, call to repentance, call to faith and to obedience. That is also a means by which God preserves His saints. Not a means by which the life of Christ is continued in us, but a means by which we find the power, the strength, the encouragement to manifest that life in our speech. The fourth place, we have to ask, what's the purpose of God in preserving His saints? And what was the purpose of Jesus Christ in His Word here to Simon? And the answer to that is, to show Satan how powerless he is. Satan hath desired you, and God said, well, there they are. See what you can do. And Satan shook the disciples violently. And from a human perspective, he only got Judas. And from a divine perspective, that wasn't victory for the devil because Judas had been the devil's all along. And maybe from an earthly perspective, it looked as if for a little while, Satan had everything he wanted, and he had all twelve, but all it took 
is another 36 hours. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His appearance to His twelve, now ten or eleven, and Satan understood. For all my moving heaven and earth as best I could against the church of God, I got nowhere. And that, first of all, is the purpose of God in letting us be tempted, but in preserving us in that temptation. You notice, God's answer to Satan wasn't, you want my disciples? You get 5,000 miles away from them. Don't you touch them. Don't you come near them. I will send the whole heaven full of angels against you. That wasn't the answer of God to Satan. His answer, as it's implied in the text, is try it. You cannot defeat the cause and purpose of God. And the second place God has a purpose with regard to His children And that, of course, is to preserve us. That is, to cause us to continue to enjoy His fellowship or to enjoy it anew again in the way of repentance. Peter must be taught how weak he is. You and I must be taught how weak we are. We as a congregation have to be taught how greatly we depend on God and how if we have the best imaginable pastor, we turn our eyes off God and think that our pastor is the one who will be the reason for our perseverance. We're doomed. To be clear, I'm not saying that was your mentality. But also to be clear, that does become the mentality of humans often. I put my trust finally in a man. And so the Lord leads us through temptation to remind us that we cannot in our own strength persevere. We will certainly fall. Lastly, in this fifth point, Jesus Christ graciously assures Simon, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. It is good Arminian teaching, but not good theology, to deny the preservation or perseverance of the saints, especially from the viewpoint of the saint having the assurance. According to the Arminian, you can only have the assurance of your preservation when today you believe, but because faith is your work, And because it's to be your work tomorrow and the next day just as much as today, you might have assurance today, but you can lose it tomorrow. You can lose not only assurance tomorrow, you can lose the grace of God tomorrow and stand in need of being reborn again. What comfort is that? It is the teaching of Rome, although not good theology, that the assurance of preservation is not pleasing to God. He does not want you to have it. Because if you have the assurance of preservation, you are going to become carnal. You are going to give yourself over to all sorts of sins, saying, I'm going to heaven. Christ died for me, so I can live how I want. And therefore, you must not have the assurance, says Rome, so that you work harder and harder. And now as good Reformed believers, you know how to answer those objections, don't you? What is Rome's error? Work harder and harder. When have you worked harder and found that on the basis of your working harder, you grew in assurance? That's not the way it works. And as regards Rome's, we'll call it a calumny, her lie about Reformed doctrine, that because it teaches we're chosen from eternity and Christ died for us and His death is effectual, that I can then live how I want? I need to be not assured because that alone will make me live a godly life? Oh no! 
We're talking about the preservation of the saints. Saints who by grace hate sin. So, Jesus comes to Peter, take it from the word of your Lord and Savior. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when, not if, when thou art converted, for my prayer will be heard, Jesus is saying to Peter, and you will be converted. On the basis of that work of Jesus Christ, and having assured Peter that that work was true for him, Peter is given a command. Strengthen thy brethren. Grateful response is required. And this is a calling that comes to you and to me as well. We who've been shaken, we who've been led through times of great temptation, we who've been brought very low in order to see that at every moment we must be looking to Him who sits above, and we who've learned to look to Him and find in Him every day and every moment the power to live a new and godly life and to confess Him, strengthen, that's the command, strengthen thy brethren. The twelve, that is now the ten, apart from Peter and Judas, the other ten are also weakened. Jesus' arrest has weakened them. Judas' defection has weakened them. Peter's denial has weakened them. And that office bearers is the real consequence in the church of Jesus Christ always of an office bearer falling grievously into sin. Congregation is not only hurt, but ask the question, if my office bearers aren't going to be faithful, how will I? The answer, of course, congregation is here. Look to Jesus Christ. But office bears strengthen one another. You have something called Centurimorum four times a year. I won't explain to the congregation at length right now what that is, but the office bears know. Make it more than a rote, more than a habit, more than something formal. Strengthen one another there. Not only strengthen one another, strengthen the congregation. Peter is to go strengthen his other ten, but then they in turn, being strengthened by seeing the risen Lord, are going to go preach the gospel throughout the four corners of the earth as far as the Lord will have them go. There is a teaching task entrusted to them. And one of the reasons why Peter must be brought so low is that he as an apostle never doubt the word that he preaches is truth. Never question it. Never give in so much as an inch to somebody who says to him, you're lying. This is too marvelous. This is not possible. I was there. He'll say that in his epistle. I was there. I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's going to strengthen his brethren by the word. That's the command of Jesus Christ to Peter. To apply it even more broadly, it might be, and it often is the case in any given congregation, that one and even more than one of us here tonight have in the past, secretly or publicly, fallen very deeply into a very heinous sin. The remembrance of which brings shame and guilt again and requires us to look once again to Christ and to His blood as having covered the sin. But when you ask why, there's a twofold answer. To teach you how weak you are 
but also because there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And there will be others in the congregation or other congregations who endure the same temptation. And when you know of them, you can go to the brother or the sister and you can strengthen them. Indeed, it was David, after he had committed adultery and murder, and after he was brought to repentance, who said in Psalm 51, verse 13, I will teach transgressors thy way, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. The sinner restored, saying, I've learned a lesson. It was a hard way to learn a lesson. And had I just taken the Word and the law of God to heart, it wouldn't have required maybe that way, but it did for me. But now I've learned a lesson. And I'm going to go to my brothers and sisters in Christ and teach them the same lessons. And that's a grateful response. That's a standing amazed at the preserving grace of God and saying, now it doesn't just mean I can go on in my life and I don't have to worry whether I'm going to heaven or not, but I am to live today as a confessing believer. What was the greatest temptation you ever endured in your life? Did you wonder what Jesus Christ was doing? When you hear Him tell you He was praying, are you amazed? And here's the proof God heard His prayer. Your faith has not failed. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and on the basis of His shed blood and by the power of His Spirit, preserve each one of us against the onslaughts of the devil. And if we've fallen, and no man can say he has not, if and when we've fallen, work repentance and restore for Christ's sake. Amen.